Okay. So this week's topic is man's response, repentance and faith. Okay. Now, Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In other words, what he meant is repent and put our trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. And tonight, like I just said, we're going to examine that repentance and faith are the keys to salvation and a victorious life in Christ. So as we start the section on repentance, I would like to define it. You have the Greek term on your sheet there. It means a change of mind or a change in the inner man. And the English word repent is only found actually 10 times in the Old Testament, many times in the New Testament. But the idea of repentance is found everywhere in the Old Testament. For example, the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 55, 7, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And then what what about Joel in Joel 2.13? And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents from disaster. And where there is a where there is repentance there especially in the old testament there is a turning a turning away from sin and a turning towards god now the word turn in hebrew is found over 1000 times in the old testament and when we combine the two definitions from the old and the new testament what we get is a change of mind that produces action where a person changes mind and direction turning away from sin and turning towards God. So to understand what repentance is, I think the best way, and this is our first point here, false and genuine repentance. The best way to understand it is to understand what it's not. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul writes, And now I rejoice, not because you were made sorrowful, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you felt the sorrow that God had intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Consider what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what zeal, what vindication, In every way, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Here, Paul is referring to the first letter he sent to the Corinthian church where he chastised them for their sin. And these verses tell us very clearly that their repentance was genuine because they had a godly sorrow, which means when they read his letter, they mourned over their sin. They were were torn up about it, okay? And not just over how they sinned against each other, but how they sinned against God. They didn't read the letter and have this guilty feeling that they got caught. They didn't try to fix things or save face by doing outward actions. But instead, they had an inward brokenness towards God. And because because if they had that false repentance, their church would have been a house of cards waiting to collapse. And 
Paul would have seen right through this false repentance and probably would have never written the verses that we just read. So, you see, genuine repentance is God-centered. False repentance is man-centered. That's the easiest way to put it. My world was disrupted because of my sin. What do I need to do to restore comfort and the status quo? It never actually deals with the root cause of the issue. It's like putting a piece of paper on a hole in the wall and like painting it. Uh, it's, you know, and saying the problem is fixed. It's not fixed at all. And a great place to get a picture of what real repentance is is when we look at Psalm 51, when David cries out to God, and I'm just picking verses from all over the psalm, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And then the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Repentance cannot be faked. It is a work of God. And a work of God starts with the Holy Spirit and continues with the Holy Spirit, which brings us to our next point, a work of the Holy Spirit. In the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy, A servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach and forbearing. He must gently reprove those who oppose him in the hope that God may grant them repentance, leading to knowledge of the truth. Here, he tells Timothy, God will grant them repentance because God grants repentance. Simple. Now, whenever God does anything in the hearts of men, it is through the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. In John 16, verses 8 and 9, the Lord Jesus, referring to the Holy Spirit, says, And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in Me. The Holy Spirit was sent to convict us of our sins because apart from Christ, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. And what does that mean that we're dead? Well, first it means that we're spiritually dead. And second, it means that we're physically dead. Okay? Where we will be eternally, eternally separated from the grace of of God and the and we will experience his wrath and our punishment for sins. We cannot change this on our own. At best, we will have a worldly sorrow and a false repentance. In Jeremiah chapter 13 verse 23, God says, "Can an Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Can a leopard take away his spots? Neither can you start doing good for you have always done evil." So what does God do for a hopeless humanity? God, through the power of His Holy Spirit, shines light into the darkness that is our lives, and we are able to see our sin for what it truly is before a holy God. And we are left with a choice. Are we going to run like roaches when the the light turns on? Or are we going to be paralyzed by our sin before a holy God and run towards Him? Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn. Will you mourn over your sin? Will your heart be broken like David's David's was? Or will you harden your heart like Pharaoh did? If you haven't put your faith in Christ yet, it is important to understand that repentance doesn't save you, 
but it shows you what you need to be saved one, saved from, and it points you to the one who can save you, Jesus Christ. And if you don't comprehend that you're a sinner, pray. Earnestly pray that God would show you your sin so you can turn from it and run towards the Lord, towards Jesus. Now, as we examine... Um, we're at our next point now, the, re- the results of true repentance. Now, as we examine these eight points, it is, it's important to understand this is not like a, a checklist that you have to keep. This is literally what will happen if your repentance is genuine. Remember, repentance is only genuine if it's done by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't just happen when we get saved. It happens for the rest of our lives. And the longer we walk with the Lord, the more frequently we repent. And if you consider yourself to be a believer, and what we're about to go over sounds completely foreign to you, I would strongly advise you to reach out to a brother or sister or an elder in this church and get to the bottom of why repentance isn't a regular part of your life. So, let's examine these. Number one, there will be a change of mind like we talked about in the introduction. Number two, there will be a brokenness, a sorrow towards God like we talked about in Psalm 51. Third, there will be a personal acknowledgement and confession of sin. We will realize that our sin is no one's fault but our own. Proverbs 28.13 tells us, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. True repentance heals the damage done by our sin to others and confession to God brings our sin out of the shadows so that we are held accountable. Number four, now that our sin is identified, we must turn away from it. That means we make deliberate attempts to cut it off and move away from it. This could be turning off your social media, changing your phone number, installing covenant eyes on your devices, Checking movies before you watch them. Avoiding certain situations. I know when I first got saved, I was coming out of drugs. I I deliberately took different routes to go home because I knew those were the routes I used to to buy drugs on. Um, Fifth, if something we... Which is something we haven't mentioned yet. A renunciation of self-righteousness and good works. We come to understand that there is no amount of good works or self-righteousness we can do. And, and nothing, none of that will take the place of, of genuine repentance. We are to have the attitude of the tax collector in Luke 18, who, standing afar off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he was saying that because he realized that there was nothing good in him. And there was nothing, there was no way he could repent of his sins without the help of God. This is what makes Christianity different. We don't just try and change our ways. We admit we are completely hopeless apart from the righteousness of Christ. And he is the only one that can change us. Number six, we come to see that in the light of all of this, the only way we can turn to find relief is our God. And Paul Washer's book, The Gospel, True Call and Conversion, where he goes into detail on all these points that I'm talking about now, says this about turning to God. 
Genuine repentance does not stop at turning away from sin. It is still incomplete until, until there is a thorough turning to God as the chief end of all desire. We turn away from sin so that we might turn to Him. The two things are necessary because God and sin are mutually exclusive. We cannot cherish or possess both at the same time. Seventh is a practical obedience. As we experience the love of Christ and repentance, we desire to obey Him and not sin in the same way again. Our concern will be less focused on fixing things in our own strength and more concerned with acting in such a way that brings honor and glory to Christ. And our eighth and final point is that it is a continuing and deepening work of repentance. When the Lord saves us, we are completely forgiven, yet we are still corrupt. And as we walk with the Lord, and, and we're corrupt because we still sin, and therefore we need to continuously repent. And as we walk with the Lord, we bear fruits of repentance and sin less. However, the closer we get to the Lord, we realize we are far more sinful than we previously thought, and we repent even more. And before we get to the next section, I want to encourage everyone here to take some time tonight to ask the Lord to reveal sins to you so that you can repent of them. And when you ask this, be expectantly awaiting joy, the joy you will experience by receiving His grace. And now let's move on to the next requirement of salvation, faith. So what is faith? Hebrews 11.1 tells us, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We see faith in God all over the Bible. However, faith in God does not save a person. Saving faith is specific to the person of Jesus Christ because there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the narrow gate. He is the door. He is the way. He is the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. Now, there are three components of saving faith. They are knowledge, assent, which is agreement, and trust. First, let's examine knowledge. Specifically, what do we need to know about Jesus? Well, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, into this world to be born of a woman, to live a sinless life that we could never live in perfect obedience to the Father. And in His perfect obedience, He was betrayed by His people, forsaken by God, and nailed to a cross. And on that cross, He bore the wrath of the Father for the punishment of our sins that you and I committed. These are the facts. A lot of people know some of these facts. Christianity has been around for 2,000 years, and we live in a country where a lot of this is still known. However, knowing these facts does not save you. Now, someone on the path, someone who's on the path to trusting Christ, you know, the, the next thing that will happen is the assent part, the acknowledgement that these facts are true. This is saying, yeah, I believe what the Bible says about Jesus is true. However, that's still not enough to save us. James tells us in chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that God is one? Good for you. 
Even the demons believe that and shudder. But wait, I thought all I had to do was believe in Jesus to be saved. Yes, that is 100% true. However, when the Bible talks about believing in something, it doesn't simply mean just believing the facts. This brings us to our last component of saving faith, which is trust. Now, I'm going to steal Ray Comfort's parachute analogy and combine it with the chair analogy that Pastor Damien used in the past. So, you can know the facts about a parachute. You can believe that the parachute will stop you from hurtling towards the earth at terminal velocity. You can believe that without the parachute, you will instantly die when you smash into the earth. However, it is not until you jump out of a plane at 15,000 feet does that belief turn into trust, where your life depends on that parachute working or you are dead. That is the level of trust you need to put in Christ to be saved. And if you're not a believer, please do not be intimidated by this. You don't need a belief checklist. You may only believe a few things about Jesus, that, and that might be enough for you to forsake all and trust in Him. I've seen small children put their faith in Christ. I've seen a handicapped child, wheelchair-bound, that could not speak, worshiping the Lord in church with more joy than I have ever had in my walk up until now. Now, you might be asking yourself, how can God save me? I don't know enough. I haven't done enough. And the answer is because you have nothing to do with it. God Himself awakens your soul by the power of the Holy Spirit, drawing you to Himself. And by His grace, He helps you see that He is worth trusting in. Which brings us to our next point. Faith is a work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Earlier we talked about when God moves in the hearts of men, it is through the person of the Holy Spirit. This verse shows us that we can't take any credit for putting our, that we can't take any credit in Christ saving us. Later in John 1526, Jesus says this is about the Holy Spirit. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. So when we connect these two verses, we see that the Holy Spirit draws us to Christ and He bears witness about Christ. In other words, the Holy Spirit reveals to our hearts that Jesus is real and that every word He said about Himself is true and every word said about Him in His holy inspired word is true. And it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we who were once blind can now see Jesus and put our trust in Him. And when this happens, it is also by the Spirit that we are born again. Now, if you're not a believer, this term born again might give you images of some crazy cult-like Christianity. I know I certainly felt that way. However, the fact of the matter is, Jesus says himself to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So what does that mean exactly? It means that when we repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, gives us a new heart. He doesn't just give us a new heart. He permanently fills us, seals us, and indwells us with His Holy Spirit. When we are born into this world, 
as a baby, we begin to see, hear, touch, taste, smell, all of that. When we are born again by the Spirit of God, we, be, we now begin to see God as changing our hearts. We can hear and understand His Word. We can taste and see that the Lord is good. And we can now truly live because we have been saved and set, fe- set free. And if you're a believer, this should, if you're not a believer, I'm sorry, this should bring you peace. Knowing that if you truly repent and put your faith in Christ, God Himself does the work and changes you from the inside out. For those of us who are born again, praise God. Praise Him for what He's done by taking out our hearts of stone and putting in hearts of flesh. Praise Him for constantly growing you, leading you, and guiding you. And Pastor Johnny is going to talk more about this next week when he talks about sanctification. Now, moving on, let us examine the results of true faith. The first point I want to make is that there is an end of boasting. Our salvation starts with us believing there is no hope for us and the only hope that we can be saved is through Christ alone. And as we begin to walk with Christ, we realize this idea bleeds into every area of our lives. Before Christ, we would revel in our accomplishments and good works. We would boast about things that God hates as if they were good things. But when God saves us, we realize that Anything good comes from Him alone. And it is in Him alone that deserves the credit. And we renounce all disgraceful and underhanded ways and count all of our good works as nothing in comparison to knowing Christ. And just to add something to that, we still might be guilty of those sins that we committed, but we can turn to Him in repentance and receive forgiveness. Second, We will obey and love Christ. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27, God talks about this new covenant of salvation and what it looks like. He says, He will give us new hearts, and then He says this, I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes, and you will carefully observe My ordinances. And when we're born again by faith and given the Holy Spirit, we are given the ability to obey God Not simply by following rules in a book, but by the Holy Spirit testifying the truth about Jesus within us. The truth that He loves us, that He died for us, that He will never leave us or forsake us, that He is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, and so much more. Genuine faith gives us a desire to obey because of what Jesus has done for us. And that brings us to our next point. True faith will bear the fruit of the Spirit, and good works. Because the Spirit of God is indwelling us and giving us the power to obey God, the result will be that there will be fruit in our lives that is consistent with God conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22-23, through 23, Paul tells us what this fruit looks like. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of genuine faith is not idle. It also produces good works. In James 2.17, James says this, "So, So also faith by itself, if it does not have good works, it is dead. 
And what, happened, and what that means is a person that has no evidence of fruit of the Spirit and a changed life has no reason to believe that their faith is genuine. Genuine faith has genuine fruit. Jesus Himself says this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 18, A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Now, if you're a new believer, I'm not saying that you have to go to seminary tomorrow and become a pastor and all this stuff, or you're not saved. But what I'm saying is, the Spirit of God will begin to change you more and more over time. And in that time, you will begin to bear fruit. And as you walk with Christ, you will bear more and more fruit. The fourth, the fourth result of genuine faith is trusting in God's promises. A perfect example of this is Abraham, a man who believed and trusted in God. Some of the, some of the promises God made to Abraham were that he will make him a great nation, that his offspring will be greater than the stars of the, the sky, that his wife, who was barren, will have a child. And when we read Scripture, we see Abraham's faith in the God of the promises allowed him to trust God's promises. We learn in Genesis 15 that his faith was counted to him as righteousness. This faith caused him to live his life with an expectancy that God would do what he said he was going to do. And in the same way, faith in Christ causes our life, causes us to live our life in such a way that we trust Him, that we trust His promises are true, and we can bet our lives on them. And now to our third section and our first point in that section. So this section is repentance, faith, and the gospel. Number one, a call to repentance and faith. The greatest prophet to ever live, John the Baptist says this in Matthew chapter 3. In verse 2 he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He goes on in verse 7 to 12, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit that is keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to turn from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And now even the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree that therefore does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in His hand, and He will clear the threshing floor and gather His wheat into the barn, and bur- and, and but the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist not only boldly preaches repentance, he follows it up with those that who, do, who do not repent will receive judgment and face judgment. If you've never repented of your sins, that means you have never trusted in Jesus. And right now, the axe of God's wrath is being held back 
by His mercy and His desire not to see you perish. John doesn't just stop there. He talks about the one who is coming. The one mightier than Him. The Ancient of Days. The King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And it is only those who repent and see their need for Him. And it, I'm sorry. It is only those who repent that will see their need for Him. And it is only those who choose to put their faith in Him that will see their need for repentance. Repentance and faith aren't something that God gives as an option. He commands it. In Acts 17, 30 and 31, Paul says, Although God overlooked the ignorance in earlier times, He now commands all people everywhere to repent. For He has set a day when He will judge the world with the justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof to everyone by raising Him from the dead. And that man He appointed is Jesus Christ whose winnowing fork is in His hand. And on that day He will separate those that rejected Him from those who trusted in Him. And He will burn them with unquenchable fire. And you might be hearing this and and you might be feeling, I don't like being judged. This God is a mean God. And you might feel like God is trying to scare you. And is that because He's a distant, mean, and harsh God? No, absolutely not. He sent His Son to die for your sins and to save you. Yes, He will judge you for your sin, but at the same time, He loves you and He made a way for you to be saved from judgment. Proverbs 14.27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Fearing God is a good thing because if that fear points you towards God, it will reveal that you have sinned before Him. And at this point, you have a choice. You can run away and choose your sin, rejecting Him and hardening your heart and searing your conscience, as Pastor Damien talked about this Sunday, or you can choose to be humble, admit to God you have sinned before Him and run towards Him. And as you run towards God in repentance, He will give you the ability to see that Jesus is the only way that you can be forgiven of your sins. All you have to do is trust Him like a parachute. And when, and when you do this, Jesus will wash your sins away, adopt you, and fill you with the Holy Spirit. You will be born again. You will be given a new heart and eternal life, and He will never leave you or forsake you. There will no longer be enmity between you and God. And because you feared Him and repented and believed, God says, this, God says the same words to you that He did through the prophet Isaiah. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will surely help you. I will uphold you with my right hand of righteousness. And if the Spirit of God is testifying this to your hearts, I implore you, do not delay. That is why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, Behold, now is the time of favor. Now is the day of salvation. You don't know when your last day will be. You don't know when you'll have another opportunity to repent. You don't know when you're going to breathe your last breath. Tomorrow you may die and your soul will be required of you. Here on earth, yes, God gives second, third, fourth, and one hundredth chances. But when you die, there will be no more chances and it will be too late. Hebrews 
chapter 9, verse 27 tells us, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Do not delay. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And you might be thinking, this isn't for me, this is for church people, or God won't accept me because of what I've done. Well, I'm standing here to tell you that you're wrong. Because if you look back nine years ago, you would find a person, a sexually immoral, a a thief, a drug dealer, a drug addict. Yet God in His grace showed me my sin and granted me repentance. He opened my eyes so that I could see Jesus and put my faith in Him. And from the moment I did, my life has never been the same. So you're not too far gone. If He could save me, He could save you too, and He's ready and willing. The heart of God wants to lead sinners to repentance and faith in Him. So follow His lead. And I just want to make one last point before we move on. Repentance and faith are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. And throughout the course of this teaching, I've been putting repentance before faith. However, it's, I think it's important to note that repentance can come after faith. If your faith is genuine, you will see your need to repent. And if your repentance is genuine, you will see your need to put your faith in Christ. So, what does that mean for us who have already repented and believed? It means that we are called to a life of repentance and faith. If the Holy Spirit convicted us of our sin, granted us repentance, and showed us Christ, and we put our faith in Him, does His work stop after we're saved? No, absolutely not. Earlier we talked about a new birth. That means from the moment we are saved, we are spiritual infants. And what do spiritual infants do? Well, they grow into toddlers and adolescents and teenagers and adults. You get the picture. It is repentance and faith that the Lord uses in our life to complete His good work in us until the day of Christ Jesus. And let's take the last few minutes to examine two ways of how God does this work and how we can be more willing participants. First, as believers, we get continually dirty. Therefore, we need continual cleansing. In John chapter 13, verses 7 through 10, Jesus answers him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you will have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Here we see Jesus is telling the disciples that they are already clean. However, they will get dirty. They will still get dirty. They are already clean because they put their faith in Christ. Yet as they walk through this world, they will get stained with sin. And the same is true for us. As we walk through this world, we will get stained by sin. We are stained with sin. And if you're anything like me, you can't go more than a minute without sinning. Now, just because our past, present, and future sins are paid for by Christ, that doesn't mean we stop repenting of our sins. As believers, sin can and will destroy us if it's not dealt with. And 
the way we deal with it is the same prescription. The same prescription we believe is the same prescription that we continue with. Repentance and faith. John talks about this in 1 John chapter, uh, 1 John, I believe it's chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His word is not in us. While the word repentance isn't used here, the word confession in the Greek has the same idea. In the context of this verse, it means to be in full agreement with God that we sinned against Him and that we, not, that we can't be cleansed apart from Him. And confession is extremely important because it exposes our sin and, no one, and, and we can no longer hide from it. This causes us to turn to Jesus by faith, knowing that He will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Another tool God has given us is to repent is confession to one another. If we examine verses 13 and 14 in John 13, the Lord, the Lord Jesus says, if, then, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do as I have done to you. Now, Jesus is not saying that we have the authority to wash each other's sins away, but what we can do is serve one another in such a way that we help keep one another clean. Two examples of this are, again, confession and prayer. Confession to one another is a sign that our hearts are in the right place and that we're bearing the fruit of repentance. Confessing our sins to the Lord is one thing. But because they're not out in the open, there is a temptation for us to hide them again. When we confess our sins to one another, it is much harder to hide and much easier to repent because now someone is walking alongside of you. In James chapter 5, verses 15, uh, verses 5, uh, chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, he says this, Therefore confess your sins to one another, to each other, and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The, pr- the prayer of a righteous man has great power to prevail. These prayers are heard by Christ, causing the person in sin to repent and turn to Him. And because of the mercy of Christ, their faith is strengthened. And the faith of the person who is praying is strengthened as well because they're acknowledging the power to change the other person can only come from Christ. Furthermore, they are more likely to repent of their sins because the person relying on them is depending on their prayers. And practically speaking, they see the effects of, this, of sin on the other person, and they don't want to fall as well. And this brings us to our final and last point. Repentance strengthens our faith, and our faith deepens our repentance. We can see God most clearly at the cross. And when we repent of our sins and turn to Christ We have an open invitation to go to the cross and experience the gospel as many times as we want. And it is because of the cross that when we repent, our God will hear us and forgive us because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And each time 
we find that His steadfast love never ceases and that His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. We find that He is faithful again and again and again. And it's because of His faithfulness that our faith is strengthened. And as our faith is strengthened and we draw closer to Him, it exposes more sin in us. And what are we going to do with all that newfound sin? We're going to repent and put our faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Will you pray with me?